starting a series today called When You Pray. One day his disciples were asking their teacher, Jesus, for some help with prayer. And he responded to them, when you pray, not if you pray or when you finally get to the point that you are spiritually mature enough that, you know, you're kind of ready for the school of prayer. When? Jesus assumed his people would be a praying people. Now, part of this, there's an interesting dynamic when it comes to prayer. On the one hand, you look at the data and um, more Americans say that they will pray this week than exercise, drive a car, engage in romantic intimacy, go to work. Uh, Nine in 10 of us say that we pray somewhat regularly. And yet, if you were to ask those same people if they feel like they're growing and kind of thriving in that life of prayer, the answer is likely overwhelmingly no, because there's a lot of confusion around prayer. Favorite example of this, and I've shared this with some of you, a pastor was uh, speaking to the, the chapel service for the Chicago Bears back in the 80s, and to launch the service, the head coach at the time, Mike Ditka, asked William Refrigerator Perry, you may remember that, uh, that player if, if you're as old as I am. And the Fridge Perry uh, was asked to start their chapel time by praying the Lord's Prayer. Well, the team's quarterback, Jim McMahon, he leans over to the pastor who was about to preach and he says, I'll bet you a hundred bucks the Fridge doesn't even know the Lord's Prayer. And the pastor says, you're on. And everybody bows their head and this pastor just can't believe that he's praying. He's betting on the Lord's Prayer in this moment, but... <laughs> Then the fridge gets up and he starts to lead the team in his prayer and he says, now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. Jim McMahon shakes his head and he hands the pastor a hundred dollar bill and he says, I can't believe he actually knew the Lord's prayer. So there's confusion around this. We have questions like, how do we do it? How do we pray? Does it make a difference? Is God really listening? Does he always respond? I mean, if God already knows what's going to happen, then why do we need to pray in the first place? Are there certain methods or words that make prayer more effective? Like if I fail to say in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer, is that like forgetting to hit send on a text message? Are there certain things that I'm not supposed to pray about? Take, for example, sporting events. Ever prayed for a certain team to win a certain game? Have you ever thought about the fact that there are people praying the exact same prayer on the other side of the field? How does that work? Every time Texas plays Oklahoma in early October, how does this work? Is God always on the side of the Longhorns and not the Sooners? Yes. <laughs> a lot of confusion. You don't have to amen that, Tom. A lot of confusion around prayer. And it turns out that's nothing new. In fact, the only thing in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the only thing the disciples ever ask for Jesus to teach them is, Lord, teach us to pray. So let's open up to Matthew 6. If you have your Bible, Jesus is speaking to the crowds. This is his famous Sermon on the Mount, and we'll start in verse 5. And when you pray, he says, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen, key word, to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. So before Jesus teaches his followers how to pray, first he says, here's how not to pray. 
And we're going to walk through some of Jesus' insights into prayer. This is from the greatest prayer who ever lived. First, he says, when you pray, don't pretend. When it comes to prayer, don't be a hypocrite. Don't pretend to be somebody you're not. Jesus uses this word hypocrite, which referred in that day to an actor on a stage. Now, there's some fascinating background to this. In the first century, one of the great theaters of that day was in a town called Sephoris. And archaeologists think this may be the remains of the actual theater there in Sephoris. It was built in the early part of the first century, one of the major building projects uh, in that part of the world. Now, just down the road from Sephoris is a little town called Nazareth. And I was talking to a friend this morning after the sermon who had just been to the Holy Land. And he's like, it, it's, it's literally like just down the road. There's a town down the road from Sephoris called uh, Nazareth. Anybody know who grew up in Nazareth? So there's been a little research on this, how it is possible that a stonemason from Nazareth named Joseph, we often refer to him as Joseph the carpenter, but the Greek word tekton equally refers to working with stones, that Joseph and his son Jesus, whom he was raising up in the family business, could have worked at a major building project like this in nearby Sephoris. Either way, uh, Jesus grew, grew up just down the road from this world-class theater and the actors who played their roles on a stage. And you look at Jesus' teaching, and he uses this word over and over again. 17 times, he says, he, he uses the word hypocrite. Nobody else had ever used it like this. Jesus is the first person to ever say, when you fake spiritual maturity, when you pretend in prayer or in any other activity to be somebody you're not, you're like an actor on a stage. Which, you think about the irony of this, and I remember um, hearing this first from my college pastor, a word which is so often used today to describe people who follow Jesus, the word began with Jesus himself. He's calling out this gap between who we pretend to be and who we actually are. I'll give you a loose example. When Allie was pregnant with our twins, you know, we had to get all the things ready for the nursery. And one of the items on the baby shower list was, of course, a diaper pail. Only it's not, you know, just a little tin can with a lid. I mean, this was, this was a magic diaper pill. In fact, they call it sometimes a diaper genie, as if the diapers just disappear. It was made of a non-toxic, organic, sustainable polymer, which everyone knows is essential for holding diapers. And the point of it is supposed to keep the nursery from smelling bad, which is a pretty big deal when you're going through, you know, 20 diapers a day with twins. Now, the tricky part is there's a little hatch that you have to open and close every time you put in one of the diapers. And that's really important. So uh, one day I get home from work, and I think the twins are like three months old, and I walk into the nursery, and it smelled wretched, like heinous, and it was, you know, into the whole house. Sure enough, I look over in the corner of the nursery, and the diaper pail hatch is wide open. So I go back downstairs, and um, I say to Allie a little bit later, I say, honey, did you forget to close the diaper pail hatch? Because I know that I always close the diaper pail hatch. <laughs> I wasn't trying to be mean. I just said very calmly, it's very important that we close the hatch, or the whole house will smell like death. And as I said that, she looked, um, she looked at me with this look, and, and I knew exactly what she was communicating to me with that look. Really? You're going to walk into the house after work 
When I've been at home with the babies all day, 10 hours of feeding and burping and diaper changing and everything else, while you're off doing whatever a pastor does, like having coffee with people all day or whatever, and you're going to come in and you're going to lead off with the diaper pail? Okay, she didn't say that, but she communicated it non-verbally with great effectiveness. Well, fast forward a few days, now it's my turn uh, to watch the twins. And I was quite confident in my capacity to handle this. Allie had a few appointments out of the house. It was just good for her to get out of the house for a while and you know, have some time on her own. So it was just me and the twins. And, and it was a train wreck. Wheeler was off the rails that day. Um, both of them like nonstop tantrums. I can't get Annie to take a nap. I'm at the end of my rope after like 73 minutes. Finally, Allie comes home and she ends up going up to check on the twins and she walks into the nursery and the diaper pail is wide open. And to this day, I have no idea which twin it was that left (laughs) the diaper pail open. Okay, the word we would use to describe the husband in said scenario is what? Hypocrite. Saying one thing and then doing something completely different. And most of us, we have a pretty good hypocrite radar when it comes to being able to see and distinguish this kind of fake pretense or lack of sincerity in other people. And we're really gifted at recognizing that except when it comes to one person, me. Jesus says, that's not how you pray. Do not pray to be seen in a certain way. What God wants more than pious actors is just humble beggars, honest, sincere, nothing to hide. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, when you pray, I want you to use the word Father. Begin with the word Father, our Father in heaven. No agenda, no posturing. It's just, it's like a desperate kid coming before her dad. God, this is what I'm going through right now. I've been thinking about this recently. I'm worried about this. I'm discouraged. I'm scared and anxious here. I don't know what to do. And we bring that before him. Which leads to the next part of this, verse 6, Jesus says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. So the second insight from the greatest prayer who ever lived, first is don't pretend, second is don't perform. Don't make it a performance. Don't do it to be seen by other people. And here Jesus gets really specific. He says, I want you to go into a room and close the door. Close off the outside world. Now, of course, praying with other people is an immeasurable gift. And that needs to be a part of the experience of everyone who is a part of God's family. And there's power in praying together as a community on any given day here. You might walk into any given room here and there is a group of people circling up to pray over this church, to pray intercession, to contend in prayer, to lift up the city of Dallas, to pray for healing in the lives of hurting people. And I thank God for that. What Jesus calls out here are people who love to pray to an audience, to show off how religious they are. They really like the sound of their prayers. He says, prayer is not a performance. It's not about sounding pious. We pray to an audience of one, and he does not want performers. What Jesus is getting at here in Matthew 6 is a kind of sacred practice, a guardrail of getting alone with God on a regular basis and spending time in conversation with him. So 
Find a place, he says, where you can avoid distraction. When it comes to prayer, place is important. Look at what he says. Uh, uh, prior to, we're told in, in Luke's gospel that prior to giving the Lord's Prayer, he said, Jesus was praying in a certain place. There seemed to have been certain places where Jesus preferred to pray. And then if you look at how deliberate he is with his language here, when you pray, go into a room, close the door. When it comes to prayer, Location matters. Place matters. Another picture of this, and I'd never thought about this before until I came across something from Pete Gregg. He, he talks about the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when we're told that the Holy Spirit first filled the whole house where they were sitting, and then, moments later, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that an interesting progression? The Holy Spirit filled the place before he filled the people. The ancient Celtic Christians described this as thin, a thin place, places where we just sense this sacredness, the, where the veil between heaven and earth, it just seems a little thinner. And for you, that may be a sacred space in a church like this. It may be an intimate chapel or a sanctuary. It may be this room. It may be a garden or overlooking a lake or the mountains. I'll tell you about one thin place that we kind of didn't see coming in this church, and it's actually three floors above us in the third floor of this new building. You've probably never seen it, but there's a massive space of completely unfinished shell space. Like, we didn't have enough money to finish it. And so we didn't finish it off, but it's there, it's enclosed. You look up at the ceiling and it's all exposed pipes and, and steel beams, it's just a concrete floor. But somewhere over the last year, like we ran out of space for our ministry environments. And so now it's just kind of worked out that a lot of our prayer meetings and prayer gatherings uh, now take place in this third floor shell space. I mean, there is, it's Spartan, there's nothing fancy about it, but it has become almost affectionately known by so many of these groups as the upper room. And it's, it's, it's kind of, it's a thin place. Jesus knows where you pray is a huge part of whether you're actually going to pray. Everybody's going to have a different place. First piece of furniture I ever bought right out of college, saved up for it, it was this leather chair, and I would sit in that chair every morning and pray. And over the years, it's been in different, you know, basements, houses. It's been to Canada and back. It's been beat up, spilled on. Babies have spit up on it. Cheerios have fallen into cracks that I cannot reach in it. But there's something about that chair. It's kind of like a holy place for me where I can meet with God. For me, that chair has an aura. And now, quite literally, it has an aura. Where's your place? <laughs> Try to make it consistent. For you, it may be getting outside. It may be going for a walk, just you and God. Some of you might be wondering, like the wheels are turning, can, I, can that sacred place for me be a golf course? And I would love to hear how that conversation goes for you. <laughs> Honey, I'm going out to spend a five-hour quiet time in my thin place. Spending time alone with God, no performance, no fear of what people are going to think. Don't worry about using the right words. That'll come. And what you'll find is God will meet you in that place. And you will know his presence in ways you cannot put into words. There have been times in my life when this daily practice of prayer in secret in the morning has been so rich and so meaningful and I wouldn't miss it for the world. And... There have been stretches when it felt a little like I just kind of had to make it happen. It was harder. 
It felt forced, it felt rushed. And I'm guessing it's not just me, that a lot of people have felt, felt some kind of guilt along the way about not praying enough. So I wanna be real clear about this. If all this does, this conversation, is create guilt about the fact that we're not praying enough, that's the righteousness of the Pharisees. And Jesus says it's a dead end, it's powerless, and, it's, and it ain't gonna get you anywhere. Prayer is a gift. It's not an obligation. It's not a guilt thing. It is a gift from our Heavenly Father who wants to meet with you. The goal of prayer, this is, a Dallas, this is Dallas Willard stuff. The goal of prayer is to move us into the constant joyful awareness of our Heavenly Father. To move us into the constant joyful awareness of our Heavenly Father. So maybe this week, let's just start with one week. Set aside 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Don't be heroic. doesn't have to be an hour. Set aside some time to be alone with God. If you are a morning person, start with a cup of coffee and find a quiet place and try to make it consistent, whether that's at home or even if it has to be in the office. If you're the kind of person who doesn't like morning people, uh, maybe for you, it, it's at the end of the day when things have kind of settled down and it's gotten quieter and don't perform. Just bring the real you before the real God who already knows what's really on your heart. Talk to God about what's going on. Ask him to talk to you, to speak, to give you an image, to, um, to give you a picture, maybe a story from scripture to guide your thoughts toward what he wants you to bring before him. He can do that. What are you concerned about, worried about, hopeful for? Bring it to them. A relationship, a challenge at work, a health problem, your kids. You may think that's selfish. Like, he's the God of the universe. He didn't, I mean, that, does, that, does he really care? Am I allowed to bring this stuff before him? Yes. He already knows. God knows. He knows your heart. He knows your longings better than you do. Nothing's too small. Nothing's too petty. Just bring it before him. You got a first date coming up? You got a huge pitch at work that you're nervous about? You're waiting on a call from a doctor? You're studying for a test? Anybody ever uh, prayed before a test? Uh, a friend of mine has said, as long as there are tests in school, there will be prayer in school. So just chill. Let's just start. So just start with where you are. Here's what's going on in my life. And what will happen, it may feel a little bit like selfish to bring that before God, but what will happen when we come before God with consistency, with that kind of honesty, again, this is from Dallas Willard, he says, prayer is God's way of helping us become the kind of people who want what our Heavenly Father wants. God wants to grow and mature you into the kind of person who is free to want whatever you want because your heart is increasingly aligned with his. So that the cry of your heart over, over time becomes, God, my, my prayer, my want is for your name to be hallowed in the lives of more and more people who don't know you. The desperate desire of my heart is that your kingdom would begin to break through into places of darkness and into this city and into the lives of people that I love on earth just as it is in heaven. God, I want your will to be done even when it's hard. And so the last part to this, don't pretend, don't perform, and then finally, don't play it safe. Just ask. Even if you're afraid that by asking, you might set yourself up for failure. 
when it comes to prayer, don't play it safe. Don't hedge your bets to avoid disappointment. And I have often found myself doing that in my life. I'm not gonna ask because I'm kind of nervous about what happens if it doesn't come out the way that I had hoped. A little later in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll close with this, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Ask, seek, knock. If you think about it, and, and uh, John Orberg makes this observation, these are the actions of someone who is desperate. Ask, seek, knock. This is what, this is what beggars do. Jesus says, I want you to pray like someone who's at the end of their rope, nowhere to go, um, nobody to help them, and all they can do is turn to God. When we were dating, um, Allie spent a week living in this house that was a kind of temporary community for people who, were mo who mostly lived on the streets. And for seven days, she uh, lived in the house and served encouraged people, helped to you know, provide tangible needs and cook meals. And she invited me over one day just to kind of join them, to spend an afternoon there. We helped to serve a meal. And then we just had this time of prayer that they had set aside for all the temporary residents in this, in this community. And we just kind of sat and circled up with anybody who wanted to pray. And to hear these people who could care less about the kinds of religious words they were using prayers of desperation, to survive one more night, praying for dry feet, for untreated sickness, praying that they could stay sober tonight, or that a bully wouldn't steal all their belongings. People at the end of their rope just crying out to God, sometimes in tears and sometimes in anger. And it was a thin place. And I, I wonder if that is maybe a clearer picture of prayer than what can sometimes happen in a room like this because we can forget how desperately we need God and that all the accomplishments and the gifts and the job titles and the money, like the scaffolding that we so often build up around us, it can blind us to the fact that at the end of the day, we are all just helpless beggars. And we desperately need the love and the rescue and the daily bread of our Heavenly Father. And so I wanna ask you for just a moment to pray with me. And God, we take a moment to tell you how grateful we are for you, who you are, and that you have chosen and loved us without condition. And God, we want to come to you bringing what we're struggling with and hoping for and excited about and in a few moments, God, we're gonna share some of those and we're gonna pray together. As we worship, as we come before you, we pray that this would be a kind of prayer, that we depend on you. Help us to depend on you in every moment. In Jesus' name, amen.